equinox is equal to the hour hand, and that's the first signal that you can proclaim a new hour. Uh, So if you use the new moon before, you're putting the minute hand ahead of the hour hand. If you use the new moon after, the first one after the spring equinox, the equinox is the hour hand, the new moon is the minute hand, and sundown is the second hand. That's the way a clock works, and that's the way God set up the heavenly clock. Now, if you use the new moon nearest, but sometimes before, as the Jews do this year, uh, you violate Scripture. Exodus 34:22 says that the Feast of Tabernacles has to come after the seasonal rotation or turning of the year. There are four turnings of the year within a year. The spring and fall equinoxes and uh, and the oh, can't think of the terms, but the four seasonal changes. The Feast of Tabernacles has to fall always in the autumn, not in the summer. And this year, uh, as the Jews are using the new moon before the equinox, uh, I think that this year probably, uh, depending on exactly when that falls, will cause the Feast of Tabernacles for them to begin in the summer. And it's possible for even the Feast of Tabernacles to all fall in the summer if they use the wrong new moon. The other thing it messes up is the leap years. Uh, If you always take the new moon after the spring equinox, the 13-month years will just automatically occur. You don't have to adjust or figure out when a leap year will be to catch it up. It will just automatically happen, as it did this year. And time does not drift because you're always using the same new moon and It does not create any problems. So God set it up on a very practical level. And uh, if we don't follow the way God set it up, we get into problems. And we find ourselves living in contradiction of Scripture. So anyway, uh, the beginning of the 13th month uh, begins Monday night. And then after the spring equinox, uh, we'll begin the first month of the year, as always. Uh, another thing I wanted to mention just briefly today, this is uh, a, 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 simply a physical thing, but it has to do with God giving us this land and uh, us having it for our use until he sees fit for that to change. There's been a spat going on and a concern among some that uh, the, the Planning and Zoning Department had said that we could not have any long-term leases, that they had a statute that subdivisions, or no, uh, yeah, and trailer parks could only have one-year leases. Uh, So people were afraid their long-term lease that the church had given on the land was in jeopardy, and this was causing a great deal of uh, frustration. But uh, the lady from Planning and Zoning called Charlotte this week and said that they have changed the statute. They didn't give us an exception or a variance, and I don't know, I want to talk to the lady eventually myself and see if we were part of the reason they changed it or not, but uh, you still can only have a one-year lease in a subdivision, but in a trailer park you can have as long a lease as you desire. It's between the lessor and the lessee. And that is something they make between themselves. So 
uh, that argument is just completely blown out the window and the air is out of the sails in that one at this point. So I think that was God delivering in his own inimical, inimical and unique fashion that he took care of the problem. Uh, by state statute, uh, someone looked that up as well, uh, in a trailer park you can have any length of lease you want in a trailer park. Uh, and state statute overrules county statute in any case. So uh, there is no jeopardy there whatsoever, and we don't have to worry about the long-term lease. It is in place, as it always has been, and I think God delivered us on that from this argument that has been going on. Uh, we're going to get an email from the lady. Uh, she's been up very busy, but she said she would send an email uh, telling us that, and that is to come. So, we don't need to worry about that one anymore. It is interesting, as a side note, that they didn't change it in terms of uh, subdivision because there was an outcry for us to become a subdivision rather than a trailer park as the county wants us to be. But the one-year lease is still in effect for subdivisions. And I think I understand this, and I understand then why the state has the long-term lease uh, available for trailer parks. Uh, if you're in a subdivision and you're leasing a house, it's somebody else's house. So they limit it to a year that has to be renewed year by year, uh, and then if there's some problem, uh, it's not renewed in a subdivision, and you move out of that house. In a trailer park, you have a totally different situation in that people move their home in, and let's say they have a double-wide, for instance. It costs a lot of money to set that house up, get it all skirted, get it all fixed up, and if you have to go with a one-year lease, that could be a, if the owner of the trailer park uh, sees that you are not living up to the lease, after a year's, they can not renew the lease, and, and you have the great expense of moving your mobile home and all your belongings because it belongs to you. The land just doesn't. So uh, that is what we are under, and it makes sense that the county would change that rule to fit what the state says. Anyway, enough of that. Uh, let's get on with the Word of God. The Bible was written for those upon whom the ends of the world should come. The prophecies of the Old Testament, the testimonies of even the first five books of the Bible and so on, all come to a head at the return of Christ. Everything in the Bible essentially is pointed toward his return to this earth from Adam and Eve's creation right on down through the ages. And even the New Testament was not written for the apostles or for the New Testament church in, in terms of it being a Bible or a living guide for the future. Paul wrote, as did the others, uh, their testimony of Christ's ministry, uh, of church administration and all those things, as well as the end-time prophecies like Revelation, specifically for that, for those people who would come later. 
Now, Paul wrote directly to the churches, and some of those letters were recorded as Bible, as to be brought down for future generations. So, all of it is pointed toward us. The early New Testament church essentially died out. Maybe a few people continued, because God said it wouldn't completely die. But it was not really resurrected until the end time, through Herbert Armstrong, and is continuing today, uh, limping along in bad shape. But it was all written for us. Now, Paul stated in 1 Corinthians 12, <clears throat> that there were three truly important things that need to be considered, and that there's nothing more important, really, than those three. He mentioned faith, hope, and love, and then said that love, of course, was the most important of the three. But they have to work <clears throat> together in tandem <clears throat> to complete a true picture. And I think that Right now, especially as Passover is coming down upon us, uh, and we are in the end time, it would be good to go through and spend some time upon the three most important things uh, that are delineated in Scripture for us to be aware of. And I will take them in the order which Paul wrote them there, faith, then hope, then love. You need faith that there is someone who can take care of things, whom you can trust, whose word is good, and that those things will work out as he says. That gives you then love, I mean hope, that those things will transpire. It gives you something to look forward to and gives you strength to carry on. Then love, among other things is there so that the voyage might be peaceful. It might be possible to live together with others of like belief and harmony, uh, believing the same things, doing the same things. So the three working together will ultimately produce the kind of righteousness that is required to be in the resurrection when Christ returns. Because, again, that is the focus and the focal point of all this, is that salvation come, that we go from mortal to immortal, that we go from human to God. That's the whole purpose of everything. And it is the purpose of the end-time work, both phases of it, the phase of calling people under Herbert Armstrong, and then the choosing of which people will go on uh, through the two witnesses and the latter temple. But it's all pointed to Christ's return, and even that of the two witnesses uh, is pointed more directly at that than anything else ever has been. And upon their death, three and a half days later, Christ will return. <clears throat> so that's what the end-time work is all about, getting us to be prepared for that event that we might rise from the earth and meet Christ in the heaven, or in the air above the earth, and then go to marry him. So let's not lose sight of that focus. And then these three most important things, faith, hope, and love, then, are the three most important things we need to prepare us for that singular event that is just ahead. 
And it is getting, I think at this point, very close. Paul thought that it was coming very soon. So did the other apostles. And they were very disappointed and wound up having to die uh, in martyrdom, with the exception of John, uh, to show and to prove their faith and so on. Now, there are three (coughs) authors in the Bible, and I'll use them as at least a baseline and a guide for the things we will discuss. That discuss these three things as their main theme. James with faith, Peter with hope, and John with love. Uh, They cover other areas, but the other areas they cover are subject to and a part of the main theme. So I know we've gone over these books before, but we need to continue to go over the Word of God and not let any of it drop to the ground or say, well, we've already been there, because we need reminded. We need perhaps deeper insight, and as things progress toward Christ's return, we especially need to be reminded of those things which are the most important. So let's begin today in the book of James. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Christ, or Jesus, or Emmanuel, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. He was writing from headquarters in Jerusalem, and to all the tribes wherever they might be. They were scattered abroad, across the oceans perhaps is what he means. I think in this case he was writing from over here, and the tribes had been scattered by ship into a captivity into Uh, Africa, the Middle East, and into Europe as they eventually gathered. We'll not go into all the history of that, but he is writing to them wherever they happen to be around the world, across the countries, and perhaps across the ocean, because that's generally what abroad means. So he gives greetings in this letter, and to James, what he is writing here was probably, in his mind, the most important thing that he, as an apostle of Christ and a brother of Christ, could pass along to all the tribes of Israel. In other words, this is the Gospel of James, or the writing of James, the letter to them of what he considered to be very, very important for them to consider. And it's, uh, in a way, it's kind of strange in verse 2. He says, greetings to all of you. <clears throat> and immediately, <clears throat> he says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into different temptations. Now, there's something that, on the face of it, is very, very difficult to do. When we have trials, we have troubles, we have tests, we have things not going the way we think we would like them to go, it is very difficult to count it all joy. I thought of this recently, that how do you do that? How is it joyful when there's trouble and pain and suffering and frustration and disagreement and difficulties that bring Trials, troubles, temptations upon us. 
The real answer to that is that it is trouble that causes us to turn to God. When things are going very well, we tend to slack off. We don't go to God as much or as diligently, as fervently as we do when we have troubles. So the joy that can be found is that we get closer to God when we have trouble. In this particular case, he talks of temptation, temptation to sin, temptation to give up, uh, temptation not to trust God, but to look at conditions around us and worry. The things are not going to work out. Things won't happen the way we think they ought to. There are a lot of different things we can get worried and frustrated about that can cause us to get on our knees and turn to God. And what can be more joyful than being truly close to God and having Him answer our prayers? That's one of the fruits of the Spirit of God is joy. And He says that joy comes or it is to be counted when we have trials, troubles, tribulations, and all those difficulties that come up in life and in the church. Very difficult to do. But if we remember the purpose is to be as close to the Father and the Son as we can possibly be so that we'll be in the resurrection when Christ returns. That's the focus. And it is all the little troubles that we have in life and around us that frustrate us and make us miserable, impatient, frustrated, angry, or whatever. And we count it as misery instead of joy. So we have to refocus and understand that it is through much tribulation that we enter the kingdom of God, and that many are the afflictions of the righteous, but he will deliver them from it all. It's easy to quote those scriptures when things are going well and say, oh yeah, that's right, that's right. But it's hard to truly appreciate them when we're in the midst of trouble, trials, and difficulties. So, <clears throat> that's his first comment. If you're having trouble, and apparently they were, he says, count it joy. It's for your good in the long run. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith works patience. He already just he already now has mentioned two of the fruits of God's Spirit. One is joy. We should be very joyful around here, I would think, because we've been having some difficulties. So we should be getting close to God, and that should give us joy. Patience is another of the fruits of God's Spirit. If we don't have joy and we don't have patience, then apparently we are missing some of the important fruits of God's Spirit and we're short on the Spirit of God. So we need to work diligently at having all the other fruits, but also these two. Well, I think James, seeing the problems of the end-time church, and there was a great falling away, there were all kinds of problems, 
Uh, and he addressed the issues here, and they're written for us, upon whom the ends of the world are come. So there's a great deal here to deeply consider and think about when we are having some of the same problems here in the end time church that the early New Testament church had, whether it be the overall church or our own and our own little group. Uh, it's the same everywhere. The message is to all Israel. See, he wrote to all the tribes. So this is a message then in the end time to all spiritual Israelites or all members of the church. So he says, the trying of your faith works or causes or develops patience. And that is, again, one of the fruits of the Spirit of God. So patience is one of the most important things that we can have when things are going badly, as they were in the early New Testament church. And that prompted James to write this. But let patience have her perfect or mature work, that you may be mature and entire, wanting nothing. Now, James was encouraging these people toward, as we'll see, faith, very clearly, so that they would want or need nothing. If you are ever going to get to the point when you don't want or need, it will be because you have come to trust God, which is one of the strongest elements of or part of the definition of faith, is trust. In this case, trusting God. With everything. We've said this many times before. It means with our health. It means with our wealth. It means with every aspect of human life. That God made the universe, God made all the laws that regulate happiness, joy, and security throughout the entire universe, including His throne and including the earth and people. And it was only when that trust was violated by He who became Satan, the great dragon, that trouble entered the world, or the universe, and came down to the earth through Satan. He no longer trusted that God would lead him in the right way, that he had a better way than God did. And look at the untold misery that has occurred in the universe and on the earth since that time. The universe was wanting nothing and lacking nothing until confusion and doubt and lack of trust, vanity and ego came into the picture. And that has been the cause of all trouble ever since. It is very hard for human beings to trust God and His Word that everything He says will happen. And it will. But we look around, and we have trouble with that. Remember Peter, before he was converted, saw Christ walking on the water, and in his eagerness, and in his zeal, and his enthusiasm, 
he decided he'd run out to meet him. Not thinking that he couldn't walk on water, he just wanted to be with Christ. So that was his emotion. And he indeed walked on water for a short while because he had his eye on Christ. And then he looked at conditions around him and immediately sank. That is a very, very important lesson for us. We must believe that God is and that he will do what he says he will do in his time. And there is where patience comes in. Faith and trust can have no end. It must be based on patience. Now, you can have an appointment with someone, and if they're late, you may choose to wait. And you may choose to wait in two different modes, essentially. One is wait patiently, without getting agitated. And the other is to wait impatiently, pacing back and forth, muttering in frustration that that person is not keeping the appointment at the appointed time. It is a matter of a mental process and an attitude that you have. You are either a patient or an impatient person. And God says that the proper attitude is patience, which comes from Him, one of the fruits of His Spirit. Impatience is a human, carnal attitude of the flesh. Now, Christ clearly said that when He comes to this earth, will He find faith? Trust, patience, total and utter belief, without wavering or equivocation, but utter belief in God and in His Son. In other words, faith is the first thing Paul mentioned. It's not the very most important thing, but it's in the top three. And Christ said it will be in very, very short supply. There have been very, very few people since Adam and Eve were created who have walked with God in true faith, trusting and believing everything that he says and that it will happen according to the way he says, and he withholds the timing for himself in order to work patience in us. And that's what he says right here. Count it joy. This will drive you to your knees and to God, and it will cause you to learn patience. Now, let's go back here. We'll be back to James, certainly. That's the, the basis that I want to use. But I want to go back to Hebrews. Uh, Paul wrote this, a different author, but it was also very important to him. And he could see it was a part a main part of the message. Now, he's the one that wrote Faith, Hope, and Love. And chapter 11 is called the Faith Chapter by a lot of different people. And that is essentially what it is about. But I want to go back into the, the end of chapter 10, first of all. Uh, he says in verse 31, 
It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We know God's standards. We know His rules. We know within ourselves that we all fall far short of the glory of God and that we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And knowing that, we are left in the hands of God. There's a certain amount of fear because we... So the beginning of wisdom is truly to fear God so that it will do what? It will motivate us to do what He tells us to do and to live that way. If we live that way, we will become comfortable with Him or more comfortable with Him because that kind of fear will be removed. But the reverence and the awe and that type of fear will remain and become stronger. But call to remembrance the former days in which, after you were illuminated, you endured a great fight of affliction, he says. That was a very exciting time in life because we began to learn the truth of God and how to live before him and what the real truth of the Bible is, not the Protestant pablum we had been fed. But remember the afflictions and the fight that was there. We had all kinds of difficulties over employment and Sabbath work, difficulties getting off of the feast, uh, antagonistic mates, antagonistic relatives and friends who couldn't see it at all. And the more we brought it up and tried to show them this wonderful new truth, the more they despised us and hated us and fought us. So, Changing our habits, our diets, everything about life basically had to change. So it was a great fight and a difficulty. So he says, remember that. Don't forget that. But even beginning to come into the church caused all kinds of problems. So don't expect that to totally ever go away. He's writing to people here who were in the church and telling them, remember that, because you're going to go through some more of it. Partly while you were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly while you became companions of them that were so used. So you may have felt pressure yourself from friends and relatives and employers, but you began to associate with the people, other believers, who are going through the same things. This was particularly true back in the 50s and 60s and 70s when there was great growth in numbers in the church. And then personally he says, For you had compassion of me in my bonds and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that you have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. So Paul is reminding them that as they came in, they knew him, because he's writing uh, to not only the Gentiles, but to the Israelites here as well. He was the apostle to the Gentiles first, but he also wrote a great deal to Israel. Uh, all that were in the church, in other words, all spiritual Jews, no matter what their bloodline was. But they did have compassion on him when he was in prison, when he was shipwrecked, when he was snake bit, when he went through all the things that Paul went through. 
he went through an awful lot of things. Stonings. We've not gotten to any of those things yet. Uh, but he had. And they took joyfully the spoiling of their goods. Now, didn't we also sometimes lose jobs and have to learn to trust God in faith that other jobs would be supplied? That if we obeyed God, we would not starve to death? So, we may have gone through some financial trials. God eventually answered some of those. And none of us have starved to death yet. No, I've never met anyone in the church of God who had starved to death. Or, or, to put it another way, I've never heard of anyone that starved to death either. Some thought they might, <laughs> you know, third tithe year or, or lost jobs or whatever, and they had a job just sitting there that they could have if they worked on the Sabbath. Just sitting there waiting for them if they'd say, I'll work on the Sabbath. And they said no. And it was a trial of trust and faith in God. And those who stuck it out eventually found a job, eventually got taken care of, and none starved to death. Some couldn't handle it and gave up the truth and the Sabbath. There's the difference between faith and patience and, well, wait a minute. God must not mean for me to starve to death. God's not going to let you starve to death if you walk in faith. But he might let you think you will. Count it all joy because it will drive you to your knees if you live in faith. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence. Confidence is related closely to hope. Your confidence, which has great recompense of reward. We have to have a positive outlook toward the resurrection, toward the reason for our faith, the resurrection, to be fulfilled. It is very difficult to grow when you have a negative approach and, well, God didn't do this and God didn't do that and God didn't send us the right leadership or God, you know, it's all God's fault ultimately. Paul even, I mean, God even told Samuel that. He says, it's not really you, Samuel, they're rejecting, it's me. It's God's way they're rejecting. They're not trusting God. And trust in God is going to be in very, very short supply from now until Christ returns. It's going to get worse, not better. So perhaps we need to consider it very deeply so that we can come to have that kind of faith and confidence that is needed so that we can receive the reward that is ahead for us. And he emphasizes in verse 36 what James starts out with. For you have need of patience, that after you have done the will of God, you might receive the promise. We are not to wait impatiently. We are not to wait in an agitated mood or attitude. Well, when is God going to do all this? And begin to get frustrated that things have not happened in the time that we want them to. Remember the first big episode of that we had in Worldwide? 
They did some calculating on the 19-year cycles as they were supposed to have been and felt that this whole thing would wrap up beginning with a flight to a place of safety and the beginning of the tribulation in 1972. And that Christ would then return in 1975. So we had the booklet 1975 in Prophecy showing his return at that time. That has been (laughs) decades ago. Most of us survived that. Some did not. Then other dates were set, and they came and went. And Herbert Armstrong thought he would lead the people to the place of safety. And he and his son would be the two witnesses. And I think in a milder type, they they were a witness in that sense, but certainly not the final uh, fulfillment of it. The former temple was minor compared to what the latter temple will do. But he died in faith, not having received the promise as well. God has known all along. And now all the prophecies that we've examined over the last years here are still there, and they are still going to happen. Herbert Armstrong never found a successor, and the one who wound up by hook and by crook succeeding him led the church right back to Babylon, and the church is a mess. But we've seen in the Scriptures this was all prophesied. Herbert Armstrong was not to have a successor, per se. The church was going to fall apart, and it did according to all these Scriptures and prophecies that we have read. God has also showed us who will ultimately succeed Herbert Armstrong, and it's the two witnesses in the latter temple. So we need not be concerned about succession or leadership or anything else along those lines as to who is who and what is what, because God has already told us how it's going to come out and who the leadership is that he will appoint and how they will finish the work in the end time straight through. We can have full faith and confidence in that. But you know what? Back in 1967 and 8 and 9 and leading up to 72, we didn't understand those scriptures. We didn't know about them. We just read Matthew 24, we're going to preach the gospel, and then if you're counted worthy to escape, you will. That was pretty much the extent of our understanding. And that was misunderstanding. Now that all this stuff has come down, we can see that God prearranged it, wrote it thousands of years ago, and it has come to pass just like He said it would. And we still don't know the day or the hour, but we know where leadership is going to come from, what form it will take, how the church will be governed by those two men, and what will happen. So, what do we do? Agitate? Get frustrated because it hasn't happened yet? No. Simply wait in patience until God does His perfect work. So that is one of the key elements of faith that both James and now Paul mention. You have need of patience, a fruit of the Spirit, not something that comes natural to a human being. By nature, we are impatient. We want what we want, and we want it now. And our culture in this country, and the world for that matter, but especially in this country, is get what you want when you want it. If you can't pay for it, put it on credit. 
You know, you deserve it and you deserve it now. We have become very selfish and very greedy and very short-sighted as a culture. <clears throat> and God is saying that we are to go counter to that, that we are to learn to wait patiently for Him. What does it say there in Isaiah 8:17? It's talking about the collapse of our nation. It's talking about the military might that will come against us and the conspiracy that is being hatched to destroy America. And it tells us there that I will wait and look for God who has turned his face from us. Wait for him. That implies very definitely patience. To wait for him. And then while we're waiting... Do due diligence in looking for him, trying to find him. As Christ put it, look for him like men look for silver and gold. They withstand 40 degree below zero weather up in Alaska and mine even in the winter time, looking diligently for silver and gold. Men will risk their lives. They will give their lives for those things. So Christ told us, there's a good example of how you ought to seek me. So this is the time, right now, so far, of not having a lot of the answers we want. But it is a time of waiting patiently for those answers and seeking him while we wait. That is part of the process that he said would occur. And I think the more we understand that, the more we grasp it, the easier then it is for us to put up with whatever pressure points we have to deal with in the meantime. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. Now, Paul wrote that roughly 2,000 years ago. And he was expecting Christ to return within his lifetime. And you know what? He never told the apostles, he never told Paul, that it would not happen in their lifetime. And they obviously <clears throat> did not grasp the message of the Old Testament scriptures that apply to today. They didn't need to, really, any more so than did Herbert Armstrong. God knew he wasn't going to live till the end. But Herbert Armstrong didn't know that. And God didn't bother to tell him any differently. So he lived out his life, worried about the church, worried about what would happen if he died, and agitating over who his successor would be, and never coming up with a satisfactory answer. God had already predicted that he would not have a righteous successor, but he didn't know that. Now, he will, but there's been a gap in time between the time he died, the church came apart, and God gives a commission and direction to the two witnesses to build the latter temple and then to go to the world ultimately. It's all written out for us. So why worry? God's already told us how this will come out. <clears throat> then he gives us some very positive instruction in verse 38. 
Now the just, the righteous, shall live by faith. That's what they live by. That is a guidepost. It gives them direction in life. Live by faith. But if any man draw back, begin to question, begin to wonder, begin to distrust, begin to agitate, and get impatient, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. We'll read that here in a moment. See why faith is one of the big three? You cannot please God without living by faith. Without utterly trusting Him that He put us on this earth for a very important reason, to become part of His family and God someday. And that everything He wrote in this book is there for us to learn by, be inspired by, instructed by, and corrected by, as as he tells us. And if any man pull back from that and begin to have any doubts that God will see this through, then he cannot please God and God will not take pleasure in him. Now you and I all want God to have pleasure in us, don't we? We want to, him to look down and say, There is a son or a daughter in whom I am well pleased, as he did Christ. Didn't say proud, because God doesn't have pride or vanity or ego in that sense. Why would he need it? He is everything. But he certainly was pleased with the way Christ carried things out. And he wants to be pleased with us. He says to us, that it is, is his good pleasure to give us the kingdom. He really, really, really wants us to be in his kingdom. And that's why he gives us this instruction. Don't doubt. Read my words. Believe them. Live by them. Don't draw back from them. And the element of patience is always there. Why? Because it will never happen according to our timetable, our desire, our wish, what we might want. We want what we want, and we want it now. That's just human. That's why patience is a fruit of God's Spirit that is hard to come by as a carnal human being. So faith and patience work together. <clears throat> he says, We are not of them who draw back unto perdition, or to the lake of fire, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. So we're beginning to see here some elements of faith. Patience and belief. True, complete belief. These things will happen as stated. Then he goes on to define, in chapter 11, faith in a more uh, direct way. He says, have faith. It has the elements of patience in it. Not drawing back, but moving forward in absolute, complete, and total belief that these things will happen. 
Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, evidenced by things not seen. Now, we, we have hope, which we'll get to. Hope is something we desperately need. Any time a human being is distressed, down, maybe they got cancer, heart problems, diabetes, things that are about to kill them, they want hope, don't they? That their life can be preserved, that their health can be restored. So they go to various plans to try to resolve the problem. Anointing in prayer, uh, herbals, almond seed extracts, uh, operations, many, many different avenues people explore to try to find hope that they can be restored and live on. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm saying that a human being needs hope. And that's just one example that they look wherever they might find hope in whatever situation they might be in. So faith and hope are tied together very tightly. It is the faith and the belief in God's Word and that ultimately Christ is indeed going to return and fulfill these promises of salvation that immortal will be, immortal will be turned into immortal and so on. It is that belief and that deep abiding understanding and patience for waiting that gives us hope. But if we shrink back a little and we doubt or we worry or we look at the water and the wind as Peter did and say, I can't walk in faith, we're going to sink as he did. Christ rescued him, and later he was converted. In other words, his thinking changed. That's what conversion is, a change in thinking. And he came to trust in Christ and came to live by faith, enough so that he was willing to be hung upside down and martyred for Christ and the Father and for immortality. That's how much it changed. That was quite a conversion, quite a change in thinking for Peter. So faith is the substance or the undergirding, or it stands under our hope, but is evidenced or is the evidence of things not seen. We have all these promises that we in this group at least have gone through in the Old Testament and the New for years, showing the promises God is going to give to the latter-day church, the latter temple, under the leadership of the two witnesses. But we haven't seen them yet, have we? We've read them. We've put, it, put the story together. But we haven't yet seen them actually happen. And then it is human nature to begin to think, well, is that really true, or is that really going to happen, or uh, is that the correct understanding, or whatever. Go back, read it again. It's not anything I saw on my own. It's something God directed me to, 
and help me understand, and the scriptures stand on their own. Once you read those scriptures and you see that it's for now, it's very, very clear what God is going to do. He's laid it out by the prophets ahead of time for us. But it's only a promise. It's only a written statement. God says it is important to him as Noah and the rainbow. And that he will do it. But our problem is lack of faith. Lack of absolute trust and belief that if God said it, it's going to be happen. It's going to happen. Some of the ancient Gentile kings would say, and I think it was in the Ten Commandment movie, so let it be written, so let it be done. God wrote it, it's going to get done. A Gentile king wrote it, might or might not happen. But if God wrote it, it's going to happen. The only question is, will we be included? And if we shrink back or draw back or disbelieve, God says he will have no pleasure in us. That only if we move forward in faith and live that way, will we be accounted worthy. You know what? I am not worried about what the county, the state, or the federal government might do or try to do to us. Because I have God's absolute assurance that if we do the right things, He will turn His face back to us and He will bless us. He will put a wall of fire around us and protect us. And we will be here to do His work. I absolutely believe that. And that's why I'm still standing here today preaching that. I have no doubt in my mind about it, for the most part, most of the time. God has made it so clear to me that I don't question it. But if and when I get a little weak or begin to falter, all I do is go back and read those promises again, and it restores any doubt that might edge into my mind. Because the story is there, and the God who wrote it is capable of fulfilling it, and has promised us He will. So, we don't draw back, but we move forward in faith and belief that all the promises of God will ultimately happen. If we don't believe the things about the end-time church that He writes, if we question those things, We are questioning God. And if we question God, then ultimately we're questioning the resurrection and immortality as well, are we not? If you question Him on the least of His promises, you are also in danger of questioning Him on the greatest of His promises. If you question Him at all, you're not walking and living by faith. There was an example in the New Testament that comes to mind of Ananias and Sapphira. Perhaps they felt they trusted God, but the leadership that God had put in the church had made a decision based on the drought and the famine 
and the difficulty of even having food in Jerusalem. So people were under the dire threat of literally starving to death because of the great drought. And the apostles, the leaders that God had put there, were not told by God directly to do what they did, but they thought about it, and they imposed something on the people. They said, conditions are so dire that some may have enough to eat and others won't, and the only thing we can do that would be truly Christian, and that's a fact, would be to have, in a way a bad word, total communism or socialism or whatever word you want to apply to it, in that for that period of time they would have all things in common. They would put everything they had into a common pot for the good of all. Now that, under those circumstances, reflects the law of God. Do unto your neighbor as you would have him do unto you. If I'm going to eat, I'm going to make sure my neighbor eats. So the apostles applied the law of God to the circumstance that they were in. And they didn't say, we're going to pool all our carrots and potatoes and wheat or barley. We're going to sell our houses. We're going to turn in everything we have so that we might all survive. What do you think would be the reaction of all the members of the Church of God around the world if that were enacted by all the leaders of all the groups of churches now split that there are? Now, Worldwide did something somewhat similar told people to run up their credit cards or whatever to save the building program and whatever else it was that, I don't remember all the details, that uh, was the crisis. I know a lot of people had trouble with that. I know my dad did, because he was building swimming pools for the evangelists in Big Sandy at the same time they were telling everybody to sell what they had and go on credit cards and send their money to the church. I felt it was an ill-advised thing. But this is a little different here in that, and I, I have no doubt God had, had appointed Herbert Armstrong to lead. doesn't mean he didn't make mistakes. And I thought that was one. <clears throat> and I still think that to this day. But in the particular case of the apostles in the early New Testament church, they did the right, honorable, and godly thing. But do you think Americans today would be willing to submit to that kind of authority in the church? That if things were so dire that God asked us to sell our homes, our cars, turn in all our food and all our money so that we might all survive, do you think most Americans would go along with that? Or would there be, you don't have that kind of authority you can't rule over us, blah, 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 on and on it would go. There would be, I think, a great deal of rebellion against that. But, it does not appear there was a great deal of that in the Apostles' day. 
Ananias and Sapphira were a notable exception. They went along with it partially, but they held some back. Now, this was not an edict directly from God. It is something, though, that the apostles did impose upon and apparently had the authority to so do. Because when Ananias and Sapphira lied about it and held some back, God himself struck them both dead as doornails. And that was New Testament, not Old Testament. Who knows what God might ask us to do? I'm not suggesting that that will happen. I'm saying it is a matter of history for us to consider. Where is your sticking point? At what point do you say, wait just a minute now? That would be a sticking point for a lot of people, I'll guarantee you. I hope it never comes to that. But we're told that a third of this nation will die of famine and pestilence a third die by the sword, and a third be taken into captivity. So those conditions indeed are coming upon this nation in the very near future. Now what portent or impact that will have on us remains to be seen. We might go through a period of time in which things become very dire. <coughs> That is past history, and that is the record, and that is what God has done in the, historically. Did he not allow the first plagues to come on the Israelites that came on Egypt? Did they not go through a great deal before he made a difference for them? That's the way God thinks. As a trial, as a test, as a humbling, he was about to deliver them, and they didn't even know which God he was. The Egyptians had a lot of gods. Didn't even know which God he was. But he had to give them some attitude adjustment to prepare them to actually get up and leave Mitzrayim, or fast forward to today, the Babylonian system, in the Egypt or sin that is this world. So that record is there for our understanding upon whom the ends of the earth have come. So do not at all be surprised if we go through a short period of very stringent circumstances. It could happen. Not predicting it, just saying it could happen. Happened to the Israelites? Happened to the early New Testament church? Why are we any better? And do we not need our attitudes adjusted to get rid of vanity, ego, jealousy, hate, distrust, mistrust, frustration, impatience, the work of the flesh, and to seek God with all our heart so that we might have the fruits instead of the Spirit? The love, the joy, the peace, the happiness, the patience, and on and on they go. It takes trouble for those things to happen. Now, 
can this be prevented? I think that also is possible. Are we going to be forced to go through that, that stringent of conditions to repent? I think there's a glimmer of hope that that will not be the case. I think God is putting us through the ringer right now to see what we are made of. To come to the point He knows where we will be and what we will be doing. And if we survive the present, the future is full of hope and blessing. Now, he has already told us that those who are not counted worthy to escape will go into the great tribulation. There they will be further tested and tried and refined and go through the very things that Israel went through in Egypt, that the early New Testament went through with the famine and pestilence in Jerusalem. It will happen again. We have God's word on that. Ninety percent of the church are going into the tribulation. Only a ten percent remnant will be preserved out of it. So, what I mentioned hypothetically here a little earlier is literally going to come to pass. Most of the church is going to go through the same things that historically have happened to people to humble them so they might turn to God. We have a chance, my brothers and sisters, to escape that. It's not just hypothetical. It is coming on 90% of the church. But he has said some can escape it. That doesn't mean we won't go through some trial and trouble ahead of time in order to try us and test us and get us to turn to God. But we have that chance that if we truly turn to God... We will escape what surely is coming. We might have a little privation. We might have some troubles, trials and temptations. But if we are humbled now, we might be accounted worthy to escape this horror that is about to come down on not only the nation or nations of Israel and the world, but upon most of the church in which they will be humbled, and at least 30%, Zechariah, I think 12, indicates, will repent during that time. Man, wouldn't it be better to repent now? Wouldn't it be better to turn to God now than to have to go through what is coming? This isn't the time to shrink back. This is time to forge forward with faith, with power, with strength. Not fear. Not shrinking back at all but seizing upon these promises of God and turning to Him and fully expecting them to happen. Don't doubt them. Expect them. And then live accordingly. The just shall live and walk by faith, trusting God that the things He says will happen if we do what He tells us to do. It is His good pleasure to give us the kingdom. He's not against us. He's all for us. Our biggest enemy is ourselves. We get on our own way. And Satan takes, takes advantage of our human nature and our distrust and lack of faith and patience.
Can't let that happen. Don't draw back at all. For by it, not seeing the answers, but walking forward in trust and faith, the elders obtained a good report. I think I'll stop there for today, but it gives us an introduction of what God expects of us, what He sees as a lack in the end time, and gives us a chance to fix. And He will take great pleasure in us if we do that. So let's, uh, let's think about our approach and about our attitudes toward God and the things that He has promised and seize upon them. And lay hold on Him. Wait for Him and look for Him. Seek, seek Him. That's what he tells us to do, and then to walk forward in that confidence, in that faith that we are to come to have. So this is at least an introduction to that.